The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this new little series within The Hamlet Podcast, which I'm loosely calling The Basics. I went to a Jesuit secondary school and each of the six years were named after a particular part of literature. We went from elements to rudiments to grammar, followed by syntax, poetry and finally rhetoric. For this extra series, I thought we might look at the elements or rudiments of how Shakespeare's language works. We tend to cover the syntax, rhetoric and certainly the poetry of Hamlet in the main episodes, but these little extras will be a chance, I hope, to look at the basic building blocks that Shakespeare had at his disposal. Obviously the language itself was English, the English of Elizabethan England. When he was starting out, the standard language used on the stage was verse. Almost everything was written in what English dramatists adopted as the rhythm they felt most akin to natural speech, iambic pentameter. So when we refer to verse in a Shakespeare play, we invariably mean this. Sometimes it is rhymed, which means that the last two syllables of consecutive lines rhyme with each other. For example, But I have that within which passes show, these but the trappings and the suits of woe. Earlier plays in Shakespeare's career that came before Hamlet could have entire scenes written in this kind of rhymed verse. A good example is A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is full of these rhymed couplets, as they are known. In Hamlet, rhymes like this tend to happen only at the end of a speech or at the point where a character is going to leave the stage or end a scene. There's quite a strong emphasis within them. But for the rest of the play, for the vast majority of the verse in Hamlet, the lines do not rhyme. And this kind of unrhymed but rhythmic language is what we know as blank verse. It's blank because it doesn't rhyme, and it's verse. The heartbeat of Shakespeare's language is this verse, and by now I'm sure you know that the basic rhythm he uses is this iambic pentameter. It's called pentameter because there are five strong beats per line. De-dum, 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 de-dum. One, two, three, four, five. Iambic refers to the kind of beats that these are. Poetic rhythms are divided into long and short syllables, or beats, and each foot, each building block of a line of verse. In a pentameter there are five of these feet, five feet, with two beats each equals ten, so that's how we get pentameter. Each of these has a different rhythm or makeup. An iam, from which we get the word iambic, goes short-long. It's light and then heavily stressed. D. Dumb. The simplest example of a word that is of itself an iamb is champagne. Certainly, that tells you something about me, perhaps. Or another word that will also work is itself. Of course, there are plenty of times when words have only one syllable or have more than two, but they do tend to fall into the rhythm of blank verse. The best and simplest example that I always remember came from one of my own teachers, and it just simply says... I think I'll go and have a cup of tea. Now, several short words in that sentence would sound very strange indeed if they were stressed. And, a, of, none of these need any particular attention, and all of the important information is on the stressed syllables. Think, go, have, cup, tea. Now, you're going to make an awful lot more sense if you say all of those words together. I think I'll go and have a cup of tea. It's very simple but it's an easily remembered example of how a clear line of iambic pentameter can work. Of course, sometimes you get a foot that is the opposite, not least the title of this play. It is, of course, Hamlet, not Hamlet. This is a trochee, which is the opposite of an iamb, and that is a foot 
that is long and then short, or stressed and then unstressed. An example of five trochees in a row is cloudy weather reaching Northern Ireland. Particularly appropriate given where I come from. It's ten syllables, it's five words themselves, five feet, but because the balance is so off, it doesn't sound or seem to flow anything like we'd expect iambic pentameter to work. This is, of course, trochaic pentameter because it's built up of trochaes, and rather like bad weather, it just doesn't sit very well. The first full line of verse in Hamlet comes from Francisco. Way, way back up on the battlements, in the middle of the night, he says, You come most carefully upon your hour. It's easy enough, you can hear the rhythm coming through it very clearly. You come most carefully upon your hour. Ten syllables, no muss, no fuss. Immediately, however, Bernardo answers with a line that's out of kilter. Tis now struck twelve. Get thee to bed, Francisco. If his name were Franco, it'd fit perfectly, and it'd go, Tis now struck twelve. Get thee to bed, Franco. But there's an extra syllable in there, Francisco. Perhaps the most famous line in the play also has eleven syllables and has a comparable problem. To be or not to be, that is the question. These are what are known as feminine endings. The term comes from a long way back from French poetry, in which a line that ends with a stressed syllable is called a masculine ending, and a line that ends with an unstressed syllable is feminine. So, you come most carefully upon your hour, and hour is stressed on the last syllable, masculine ending, to be or not to be, that is the question, feminine ending. I read somewhere that there are over 500 feminine endings in Hamlet, given that Shakespeare tends to use them for ideas and thoughts that aren't quite as neat and orderly as you come most carefully upon your hour, it's always worth looking out for them. The to be or not to be soliloquy is an extraordinary example of how innovative Shakespeare could be with blank verse by the time he came to writing Hamlet. Bear in mind, he had about 20 plays under his belt by the time that he was creating this one, at or around the turn of the 17th century. The first five lines of this most famous of all soliloquies are all slightly out of whack. They all have that extra syllable hovering at the end, that unstressed ending. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them. And thereafter we move, albeit briefly, back towards a more regular sequence of lines in iambic pentameter. Of course, no actor is ever going to perform it the way I just did, hammering home the fact that all of these are unstressed endings, and it sounds a little bit more something like this. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them. This great existential crisis is woven into the fabric of these lines. Feminine endings tend to signify that something is out of joint, that an idea is maybe too big for the normal rhythm of a line. You might argue that there's no idea bigger than this notion of do I live or do I die, and the rhythm of these lines certainly backs that up. It's a single sentence that rambles over the course of these five lines, and once Hamlet happens upon the notion of dying and maybe death would be easier than what he's currently thinking about, the rhythm calms down and it does seem easier. Of course, this won't last and his ideas bubble into feminine endings again throughout this speech. 
as you get to know the rhythm of iambic pentameter, this de-dum, 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 which is probably going to be written on my grave at this point, you'll very quickly start to read all of Shakespeare's lines for it. Very often, when I'm preparing a new episode for the podcast, the first thing I'll do is count out the syllables of every line that we're going to cover. As very often, there are nuggets of information to be found even in the rhythm of the verse, or the way that Shakespeare uses or manipulates it. If you count out a line and it feels like there are too many syllables, ask why that might be. Read it aloud. Scare your friends. See if a particular word pops and won't fit the rhythm. Nearly always, that'll be the word Shakespeare wants you to notice. As well as iambic pentameter and how it's working, there's one other feature of a line of verse that I want to cover while we're looking at these basics. This extra element is called a sejura, and we covered it slightly in the past, and it's what happens when a phrase ends within a line instead of at the end of one. It comes from a Latin word that means cutting, and essentially it suggests that the flow of a line is somewhat cut, which it is if a phrase ends. It doesn't necessarily mean a pause, but it happens when, for example, a new idea happens or begins within a line. There's an easy example within those first few lines of to be or not to be when we reach the end of that first sentence. It ends up, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing, end them. There's a full stop within a line of verse right there, and for sure we have a sejura after that, because thereafter we're going to have a new big idea, to die, to sleep, and so on. Shakespeare gets a little playful a few lines later, when he ends the next sentence, saying, For in that sleep of death what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. If you count out the number of syllables in this last line, you'll come up short if you want a pentameter. Must give us pause, there's the respect. There's only eight syllables or four feet. However, after must give us pause, he not only puts a full stop, an end to the sentence, I think he's actually inviting the actor to take that pause in order to maintain the rhythm. So an inventive performer will find a way to speak the line with a pause to compensate for that missing beat. Shakespeare manages to play with just about every available element at his disposal, and it's because he's such a wizard with verse that it's worth taking the time to count things out, to scan, to pay attention, and to focus on how the lines are built or divided. For now, I think I'll go and have that cup of tea, and next time we'll look a little more at verse, particularly when it's verse that maybe doesn't look like verse, and we'll also examine all of the verse in Hamlet that isn't iambic pentameter. And then we'll move on to prose, which of course isn't verse at all. Keep an eye on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for a new page designed to support these extra episodes, and I hope you'll join me next Thursday for the next instalment.